offer up our thanksgiving to you, um, first and foremost, for this wonderful day um, that we get every week to come and worship you um, and get to delve into your scripture and learn what you have um, for us. Um, we ask that you fill our hearts with understanding, that you open our minds to comprehend and to um, know what you want us to hear. Um, please fill us with your spirit and with your shalom, um, and let Pastor Steve impart your wisdom onto us. In your name alone, amen. Thanks, Peter. We've been working through a sermon series entitled, You Have Heard It Was Said. Oh, that's, that's not going to work. Somewhere I have slides. Oh, no. Um, are they after the song, by chance, that we're supposed to sing after the sermon? Maybe give me some help. Well, anyway, Jesus takes familiar teachings of the day. And then what he does is tries to confront that teaching and how those teachings have been twisted by the teachers of the day. And, and we've looked at uh, a, a few of them. Uh, one of them is you shall not commit adultery. The other is uh, you shall not uh, murder. Uh, and, and, he, and he heads into those and, and brings some of them to the heart of the meaning. Like for murder, he, he basically says if you're thinking evil and angry and bitter and vindictive thoughts about another person, well, that's like sharply expressed trauma at the same level as blunt force trauma. And with adultery, Jesus goes to show uh, people the extents that sacrificial love will go to honor the image in another person, the image of God, and how one, when they are transformed by Christ, they will ruthlessly attempt to, to rip out sin within their own lives. Last week, we, we talked about swearing or, or swearing an oath or promises that are made and how Jesus confronted deceitfulness that was inherent in the oaths that people attempted to create, showing that people who have been transformed by Christ will honor God and God's name by speaking transparently, by speaking truthfully, by being people of integrity whose yes means yes and whose no means no. And, and now we come to this statement, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And Mindy, I think, I think in her children's message did great. We could just skip the rest of the sermon if we wanted. You know, how, how many times is it that we do see an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in society? She used some examples that you could find in homes who have more than one child, or you, or you could use examples that were found on, on playgrounds as name-calling is, is returned for name-calling, or shove is returned for shove, or punch is returned for punch. That philosophy that says, you do this to me, and I'm going to do it to you. 
And it isn't necessarily only limited to to playgrounds or schoolyards or in homes. Sometimes we see it out in society as well. I remember um, when I was a kid, there was this thing that was rather popular to do. Actually, I was probably out in high school. Has anybody ever heard of toilet papering? Okay, you wouldn't do that. Two years ago, you would never have done that, right? That stuff was valuable, but you would gather a group of friends and you would pick out uh, someone's house, hopefully that had lots of trees, right? And you would toss those toilet paper rolls so high in the tree, let them drag down, toss them up again. Sam, you're smiling over there. Maybe, I don't know, have you done that? Uh, You know, so you do that, and then what happens is there's typically some retaliation at the same level. You do that to me, I'm going to do it to you. So they find out who it was, and then it goes on, and they go do it to the next person. The thing about what's this called retributive justice, the, the punishment being the same as the crime, is that sometimes there's a little twist on it when Perhaps a dad finds out who it was that toilet papered their home and the dad gives those parents a call and soon here come the kids with heads down knowing they have to somehow figure out how to clean up all the mess that they had made. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I wonder what Jesus has to say about this concept of retributive justice where the, the, the crime and punishment somehow equal out. So let's go uh, to Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 38. It'll be on the screen. And if you uh, got a Bible with you, the black Bible in front of you, I think it'll be somewhere around page 875. Uh, if you have a children's Bible, one of the NIRV ones that we give out at third grade, that'll be on page 1,177. Hear these words. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, then go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you And do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. We go back to this eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. This was not only common to us, but this was very common to the people of Israel. They they actually grew up learning about this concept of retributive justice, an eye for an eye, and and you actually find it in a couple different places. You can, you can find it in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. And so we're going to take a peek at Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 to 25. 
But if there is serious injury, so there's some, some things that are earlier, which we'll talk about later, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Whatever happens to one will happen to the other. When we examine the whole chapter of of Exodus chapter 21, what we find is that what is being set up is this system of justice that the people of Israel are going to be experiencing. And this isn't some system of personal justice, but this is uh, an actual system of justice where there would be like going to court, you could say. And, and in this system, they, they would make sure that the punishment matches the crime, that there was equal weight. And you kind of heard it in those passages, life for life, not wound for life, you know, not hand for foot, not eye for life, right? They, they all matched, wound for wound, burn for burn. It was letting the punishment fit the crime so that someone would not be punished to a, a greater extent and that someone wouldn't be punished to a lesser extent than what they had deserved. Now for Israel, this actually wasn't the only society or people group that came up with this idea of retributive justice. In fact, before the Hebrew, Hebrew script, scriptures were written down from their oral tradition, there was uh, a document called the Hammura Code of Hammurabi. It was written in the 18th century B.C. So it, it would be even before the Hebrew Bible was written down, right? And they found this type of system that was even written then. And Israel, too, experienced it in places outside of their society as they were brought into exile in Babylon. The, the Babylonians also had their own system of retributive justice, but they had maybe a little bit more of a twist on it, that your social class mattered based on what punishment you received. If you commit a crime against someone of the same social class as yourself, you receive one set of punishments. But if you commit a crime against someone who is in a higher social standing, there is a separate set of more harsh punishments for those individuals to experience. Perhaps in your mind, you, you bring that to today. There's some that would say that there could be two systems of, of justice at play depending on your societal standing. The most common, well actually there's two most common, the one that I'm going to talk about is celebrities. How often do we wonder if celebrities somehow seem to get away with a little bit more than any of us would get away with 
because of their societal standing or the amount of money that they have to hire the best lawyers to put the situation in the best way for themselves. Where conversely, individuals perhaps with a lower societal standing who are unable to hire the best lawyers or lawyers at all somehow seem to get the worst punishment for the same offense that that important societal person was able to get out of. Maybe a little bit more lightly speaking, we could say, and it's probably older children say that there was two systems of justice in their houses. The older kids never got away with anything, but they say that their younger siblings got away with every single thing that they wanted to do. I would never get away with that. I was the youngest kid, so I don't know if that's a really good example for me to say anything about two systems of justice for the Babylonian people. And the Israelites experienced this eye for an eye, this retributive justice too in the Roman Empire. And that's where they were living in the day that Jesus was preaching his Sermon on the Mount. The Romans had their system which, which saw the punishment and crime matched by uh, actually some type of monetization. There became some sense of fine for doing something you weren't supposed to do. Has anyone ever gotten a speeding ticket? We're raising our hands for this one, everybody. I have. I have. It's been, I think, more than, I don't know, 15 years or somewhere around there. A punishment of a monetary basis for some type of crime that you did. So you can see how Israel was familiar with it. They grew up learning about it in the Torah. They, their ancestors lived it out in the Babylonian Empire. And now in, in the modern day Israel that was occupied, the, the Roman government, they were living out this retributive justice system. And the hope was that it would always work out that the punishment would equal the crime that was committed. Like I said earlier, that they wouldn't be punished to a greater degree and they wouldn't be punished to a lesser degree, but also the hope was that no matter your societal standing, you would experience some type of punishment for the crime at hand. But the problem, the problem came when when the Israelites took what was supposed to be a system of justice in the courtroom and brought it out and brought it into the open streets. And, and that was, would be where you would hear, well, he hit me first, right? The, the type of bringing it into your personal life where you have a personal vendetta, a, a personal grudge against someone because they treated you a certain way. So now, well, I'm going to treat them that same way. An eye for an eye, a, a tooth for a tooth, that bitterness, that anger, that desire for revenge that we talked about in 
the section about murder is, is developing out into this retributive justice that's acted out on the open streets. Private vengeance, no judge, no jury needed. And that's even something that the Romans didn't want to happen. They said retributive justice is for the court system. It's not for out in the public, not for society. It's for the court system. And that's the same way that Israel was supposed to treat it, but they they didn't want to. And some of it some of it stems that anger and that bitterness and that that rage that was rising up in the Israelite people had to do with that the Romans could could oppress them and, and really just treat them. The military people could treat them however they wanted. Even even the Roman public could. And the the Jews had gone such a long, long time. The Israelites had gone a long, long time and and feeling that that there was no system of justice that was for them. And so what they decided to do and what was stirring in their midst as Jesus was preaching this was a desire to revolt. Their anger had brought them to a point where there was this violent resistance brewing among their people, hoping to strike out at the Roman Empire who was their oppressors. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth just laying and burning underneath the surface. And it's into that context that that Jesus advocates for a way. A a different way than, than what had been taught up to that point. He advocates a way of peace to these people. Saying that a personal relationship is not a place for the vendetta and in vengeance. You know, it's elsewhere in Scripture, too, that we, we see that this aspect of vengeance is not something that we as individuals take upon ourselves. In Leviticus 18, do not seek revenge or bear grudge against anyone among your people. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or we could go to Deuteronomy and it says, It is mine, this is the Lord speaking to avenge. I will repay in due time their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, their doom rushes upon them. Or in in Proverbs, do not testify against your neighbor without cause. Would you use your lips to mislead? Do not say, I will do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they've done. Even in the New Testament, amidst this uh, Roman Empire, Paul writes these words. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. That's that reference to Deuteronomy, right? I will repay, says the Lord. In this oppressive atmosphere, Jesus says, Take the way of nonviolence in compliance. It reminds me of an individual, Martin Luther King, right? He so strongly during the civil rights movement 
advocated for a way of nonviolence, a way of peace to show the American people at that time that their treatment of black individuals was wrong. Here we have Jesus himself advocating for a way of peace, and we have Martin Luther King advocating for a way of peace. But here's the thing, those people that advocated for the way of peace, it didn't necessarily turn out great for them, did they? Amidst an individual, Martin Luther King, who, who fought for peace, fought for equal rights by nonviolent measures, he was killed. The, the way of peace is, is not easy. The way of, of peace to set aside revenge, to, to step back from that burning anger is not an easy road to go. And, and I think it might be a little hard for us to understand that. What Jesus does in his desire to show a way of peace is to reverse and flip this situation upside down. Because in, in Christ's kingdom, things don't operate the way that they operate in our mind. And so he said, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other. You see, this is an interesting passage because Jesus says go in all in to be disgraced. In that culture, if, if you're slapped on the face, it is a disgrace on who you are as a person. It affects who you are. It is, it is attached to your integrity. It is attached to the very being of who you are. And he says, go to the position of humility and even more disgrace by not retaliating and by being slapped on the face on the other side. Don't push back. Don't, don't try to resist what this person is trying to do. Do not work to dishonor someone else, but instead put yourself in a position of humility and vulnerability. And it's repeated in the next two examples that Jesus talks about as he goes to, uh, here we go, as verse 40 and 42, or 40 through 42. If anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt and hand over your coat as well. I don't know if you know this, but they didn't have pants. Your shirt was your undergarment. Your coat was your, your outer garment. And so if someone sues you for your shirt, your coat is your layer that is covering your body. It is the most basic necessity of life in that time. It's not just used as an outer garment, but oftentimes for individuals it was something that was used as their blanket when they slept. And here Jesus says, put yourself again in a most vulnerable position by just giving it to someone who's trying to take your shirt. If anyone forces you to go one mile, then he says, 
put yourself in a position of humility and, and go the extra mile. Has anyone ever heard that phrase before? Going the extra mile. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. When experiencing someone who wants something, give them more than they desire. He, he takes these opportunities for vengeance and anger to develop and, and turns them into opportunities for generosity. He, he says instead of, instead of desiring a personal level of justice, instead, instead of treating it as they're taking it from me, Change it into I'm giving this to them. There's a, there's a difference there, isn't there? Taking versus giving. And even when we think about giving something to someone, we can reluctantly give. Can't we? Um, I think it was nine months ago or something, we talked about reluctantly giving, and it's like this, this hand that is tightly holding on to, to whatever it is that you're giving, and it's this thing where, you know, you might need the help of a spouse or something to, to pry those coins out or to pry that coat out of your clutches, giving to versus giving from. Giving from is different. It's giving from the outpouring of God's love in your life. You see, Jesus, when he was talking to his people, he said, my kingdom operates differently. And when I am in your life, when I have, have come into your life, I will change the way that you live, that you won't see something as giving to, but you will be giving from the outpouring of love that I've put in your life. Giving from what I've given you, realizing you have so much to offer others. And so when someone asks for something, you will not reluctantly give, but give from that outpouring of love by giving from that transformed Christ-centered heart that has surrendered your will to God's will. There's uh, probably a way that we could describe this type of uh, generosity. Sinclair Ferguson uh, describes it as foolish generosity. Because no one in their right mind would give up their most basic necessity, their coat. I'm pretty logical. I'm not giving you my coat, right? If that's the only thing I have, I, I, would, I just wouldn't. But out of foolish generosity, out of a heart that has been transformed by Christ, an individual who is endowed with the Spirit, 
in themselves. They have a transformed heart. They have a transformed mind. And so they see someone in need, and then they say, well, here, here's the, the coat off my back. Do not, do not withhold from those who are asking you, it said in verse, 20, or verse 42. We should aim to look foolish with our generosity, and clearly the example Jesus gives, someone would look foolish. But Sinclair Ferguson goes on, if, if God has given it to you, then he has given it to you to be shared. If God has given it to you, he has not given it to you for it to be pried out of your cold, dead body. He has given it to you for you to have an open hand to be generous to the point of being considered foolish. The third example that we had where it talked about the the walking a mile and, and giving someone two. This was something that any military individual in the Roman Empire could force someone else to work for them. They could say, carry my stuff at any given time, and and they would be required by law to at least go, I think, one mile with an individual. But here Jesus says, The transformed heart doesn't begrudgingly give one mile. The the transformed heart generously gives from the outpouring of love that you've received and offers to go the extra mile. Taking that opportunity for anger and instead turning it into an opportunity for generosity, giving out of what God has given you. There's a a place in Scripture where we see this type of thing happen. If if you go to Luke 23, I'll put it up on the screen, there's this guy who was forced to carry a cross by the Roman military, and, and we read about it here. As the soldiers led him, meaning Jesus, away, they seized Simon from Cyrene. He wasn't even anywhere near his home. Cyrene was uh, North Africa, I believe. And he's somehow on his way in from the country, and he's seized by the soldiers and then forced to carry the cross of Christ for Jesus. I think this is an interesting picture because it's in Luke. Luke is the only one that has this last phrase in here. And made him carry it behind Jesus. So here you have Simon of of Cyrene, a foreigner in the land, you could so to speak, that is, is strapped with this weight of the cross as he drags, you could say, his cross behind Christ. An image that could come to mind was something that was written earlier in Luke. 
Jesus said what it means to be my disciple is to deny yourself and take up that cross and follow Jesus. You see Simon of Cyrene taking that cross foot by foot, street by street that they were going through in Jerusalem to get to the edge of town to the hill, carrying his cross. Perhaps we could say a picture picture of what a disciple is. You know, we, we really don't know much about Simon of Cyrene. We know he's got a son named Rufus and another son where I can't think of what his name is. There's some oral tradition that goes to say that that Simon of Cyrene, that his sons ended up being essentially missionaries for Christ. There's some that believe that in Romans chapter 16, where, where Paul is going through this list of people to thank, uh, that there's name, this name Rufus, that, that they believe that that would be, be his son. We could imagine this being an opportunity for Simon of Cyrene, who was possibly affected by who Christ was, to see his carrying of Christ's cross as an act of love out of the outpouring of love that maybe he had received from Christ. We, we don't know. But maybe we could, we could think of it differently as we think of our life in Christ. If, if we must deny ourselves and take up our cross daily to follow Christ, perhaps that is us taking on that transformed heart that the Spirit is working inside us. The, the transformed heart that the Spirit works to remove the anger and bitterness and resentment that would lead to the, the murder that we talked about weeks ago. Maybe that transformed heart as we take up our cross would, would remove the, the lustful thought and lustful look that arises within us. Perhaps, perhaps taking on that transformed heart and transformed mind will, will then change the way that we speak and that we will no longer try to spin things to make us look good all the time. Maybe that transformed heart will cause us to to not want to withhold from, from the one who asks. Maybe it will make us not want to turn away from the one who wants to borrow from us. Maybe your art outflow of, of love and mercy that you've received will, will make you as an individual be willing to look foolish, giving up your most basic necessity for, for Christ. 
You know, because that's what we saw Christ do, wasn't it? He, he gave up of his own life because of the outpouring of love that he had within him for the people that he as God uh, created. As he was there speaking the word, the word of Christ, the word that created the people that we are today, that created the creation that we live in today. And, and it was Jesus who really put himself in a position of vulnerability, didn't he? As he took off his cloak and became a human. As he, he took off his perhaps godliness his all-powerful nature, putting himself in this vulnerable position as a baby needing care from someone else. Jesus continued to go and, and put himself in vulnerable positions, going to the garden at night knowing that someone was going to come and he was going to be taken from that place and led to his own death. It was Jesus that turned the other cheek, so to speak, to put himself in a place of, of humility and a place of dishonor as he, was, as he was nailed to the cross. To give perhaps what some would see as foolish generosity to give up of one's own life but for him it wasn't foolish because he was providing life for each and every one of us there's this passage uh, that Jesus uh, uh, speaks to a, a variety of people uh, a story, so to speak, where he's separating the last day, he's separating the, the sheep from the goats. And, and to the sheep, they're, they're welcomed into the kingdom, and, and the goats are not. And, and the goats are like, well, why? Why are, are, are we not? Well, it's because they didn't care for the least of these who needed help. Here, Jesus is saying, give. Give out of the generosity of your heart to those who are in need. And, and this, we can think, is, is our same thing that we are taking the position of Simon of Cyrene. Taking up our cross and, and following Christ day after day after day stepping into places of need, giving not out of, out of a, a begrudging position, but giving out of a generous heart that has been transformed by the love of Christ. To provide generously to all those in need that we would not turn away from someone, that we would risk being looked at as foolish, so that Christ may be honored and, 
and that people may be taken care of. I think that's something that we can celebrate, that, that Christ works in us this transformed heart that overflows in abundance with his life. And that we have the opportunity every time we go out of these doors and and out into the world and out into our neighborhoods and into our workplaces and into our schools and into the grocery stores and in the, the lines for coffee. And we have the opportunity to live generously lives of transformation because of the love that Christ has for us. Let us pray together. Father, we pray for that transformation to be in our hearts. That generosity would be something that oozes from our very veins. That each opportunity for someone to desire or or have a need that we would step out of our way to, to give that to them. We pray that your, your heart of love would impact us so much that we would give to the one who asks us. That we would not turn away from one who wants to borrow from us. That we would be able to Visit those in need as you talked about when you separated the sheep and goats. That we would put ourselves in positions to look foolish with our generosity. All out of that love that you have for us. That love that brought us grace when you could have brought us vengeance. It's in Christ's name that we pray through the power of the Spirit.